Hello, and welcome to the Ontic Protective Intelligence Podcast. I'm Fred Burton, the Executive Director of the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. During my years as a counterterrorism agent with the U.S. State Department and time spent as a physical security expert in the private sector, I've seen it all and met many fascinating people along the way. This podcast series explores the riveting world of protective intelligence through conversations with leaders in the security field. I'm Fred Burton, and now on to the podcast. Carol Lenning is a national investigative reporter at the Washington Post, where she has worked since 2000, a three-time Pulitzer Prize winner and co-author of the number one New York Times bestseller, A Very Stable Genius. Lenning is also an on-air contributor to NBC News and MSNBC. She lives in Washington, D.C. with her husband and two children. Carol, welcome to the Ontic Protective Intelligence Podcast. Thanks for having me, Fred. Wow. It was a great book, Carol. You did a real good job with this story. Thank you. It was a a little bit of a labor of love, a long time in the making, um, but it felt important. Yeah, it certainly is. Uh, I know that firsthand from my years of protection. In doing this story, Carol, what really surprised you? You know, I think it's really the the beginning of why I wrote the book in the first place. Uh, you know, I wandered into learning about and reporting on the Secret Service almost really by accident. It was 2012, and the Secret Service at that moment was suffering what was considered at the time the most humiliating scandal uh, of its entire history, save for maybe the assassination of John F. Kennedy. It was um, a series of agents and officers who were shipped back from Colombia, South America, because they had been engaged in and were under investigation for turning a presidential trip into kind of a, a bachelor's weekend, getting hammered, hiring prostitutes, bringing them back to their hotel rooms, all in the days leading up to when they were supposed to be sort of making sure the president would be secure in that city when he visited for summit. And I think the thing that most surprised me was learning that that was nothing. That scandal was was really minor compared to the other things that the Secret Service had been covering up. Huge security failures, gaffes and mistakes, and a strong belief among many of the agents at the time that they feared President Obama would be killed on their watch. Yeah, I read in your book, Zero Fail, that uh, the threats against former President Obama were just off the charts. And one of the questions I had for you, Carol, in the course of your work in covering the Secret Service for so long is, do you think that mission creep has affected their mission, meaning the service is into uh, school shooting analysis, uh, certainly credit card fraud, which they've had for a while, special event management and so forth. Do you think their mission is just too broad? 
You know, I absolutely do think that, Fred. Um, and I'll paraphrase a very senior Department of Homeland Security official who agreed to sit down with me and go through all of the Secret Service's sort of woes and missions and assignments. And this person had reviewed that themselves to try to figure out what they could do to help the agency and basically said, if anybody realized how much this group has to do, how many duties it has, how much money it has, they would realize they cannot do the mission that they have now. I mean, everyone thinks of the Secret Service as protecting the president, making sure that he's, aw- that he's alive all day long and he gets to bed alive every day. It's a huge assignment, uh, especially in, in our current environment, a very, very hostile, sometimes domestic situation. And on top of that, the Secret Service protects 42 other people. On top of that, they protect in every campaign season every major candidate for president. On top of that, they protect 150 to 170 foreign heads of state when they visit New York every year for the United Nations General Assembly. On top of that, they also have their legacy uh, sort of mission, which is investigating counterfeiting and financial crimes and cyber hacking. Many other agencies investigate those too, but the Secret Service still clings and holds on to that. And it's just too many things for the amount of money um, that the agency actually gets. $2.2 billion annual budget sounds like a lot, except it's the cost of one fighter jet. So it's not that much for all that they are tasked with. No, and I was thinking, Carol, off the top of my head, when I started in 81 and looking at the organization now, I can't think of another time period in history where the service also has so many former protective details that they're also responsible for. Absolutely. I mean, you only have to look back a few months to see that the president's, um, the former president, as he was on the way out the door, authorized details, full-time details for every single one of his children, grown children who were in their, you know, thirties and forties, um, and also authorized details for his three top former officials, his chief of staff, Mark Meadows, his national security advisor, Mr. Uh, O'Brien, and also his secretary of the treasury, um, Steve Mnuchin who had really no real threats against his life when he was a cabinet member. And and surely his threat assessment uh, level has gone down considerably even since then. And then we have the former details, not only with former President Trump, but Bush, Obama, Clinton, and Carter as well. That's right. I mean, a president gets lifetime uh a former president gets lifetime protection, as does a first lady. There are presidents who have tried to ask to waive that protection, feeling that now that they're in their aging years, they don't need this kind of protection, but it is by statute provided to them. Um, and, you know, what's interesting is during the Trump administration, the chief of staff at the White House, John Kelly, 
recognized that the service was really treading water financially, just could not keep up with all of its missions, especially because of President Trump's travel. Almost every other weekend, he was going to Bedminster or to Mar-a-Lago, depending on the weather. And he started going around asking people to give up their details. Kellyanne Conway gave up her security protection. He asked uh, Secretary Mnuchin to do so, but the secretary resisted it and insisted on keeping his full-time protection. I thought you did a great job in Zero Fail also discussing the evolution of just the Secret Service training. Yeah. So thank you. You know, Fred, I was amazed learning, I don't know, how vindicated the Secret Service was when it began a much more rigorous training. So sadly, you know, many people have said to me who work in the agency that the Secret Service's methods are sort of born of blood. Some tragedy happens, some horrible thing happens, a shooting, an attempted shooting, in the case of George Wallace, a shooting that leads to paralysis. Um, And the agency begins to change its methods to compensate and and mitigate that ever happening again, block it. So after Kennedy was killed, there was an effort by the Secret Service to stop presidents from traveling in open convertible vehicles. Uh, They had some success. Uh, There were a couple exceptions where presidents insisted on being in convertibles so that they could see the people and be accessible to the people. But after that assassination, you know, a gut punch like no other for the Secret Service, so painful for that agency, they began a, a rigorous retraining and rebuilding of the agency. And the retraining, which came to be known as attack on the principle, taught agents how to in- instantly react to the sound or sight of an attack. Instead of looking over their shoulder, as they had that day in Dealey Plaza with John F. Kennedy in 1963, instead of looking over their shoulder at the, at the sound of a crack of, of gunfire, instead, um, they w- were trained to move. And the vindication came, as you know, when the attack on President Reagan happened weeks into his presidency, he is shot at close range by John Hinckley as he leaves the uh, Washington Hilton in downtown Washington. Hinckley, unfortunately, got into a group of cameramen who hadn't been screened by the Secret Service and was really dangerously too close and able to get off very successful shots. But that attack on the principal training really worked. Tim McCarthy, an agent on the president's detail, sort of puffs up his chest, throws out his arms. He's in front of the president and he takes the incoming bullets and falls to the ground. The president is behind him. And again, at the sound of gunfire, not waiting for it, but at the first sound, the head of Reagan's detail takes one arm and begins shoving the president's shoulder forward, barely you know, not almost clocking him in the jaw as he does so and pushes Reagan to the floor of the back seat of the limo. President Reagan said that the velocity at which he was pushed made him think that one of his ribs was broken. Turned out to be something else, turned out to be a bullet that had ricocheted in the well of the back seat of the door and actually almost killed him, but luckily did not. 
Anyway, the, that attack on the principal training made all the difference in the world. After the attack on Reagan, though, because the Secret Service knew that that was also a security failure, there were efforts to try to cover all arrivals of the president so people could not see him entering or exiting uh, as he walked towards his limo from a hotel. There was also the use of magnetometers so that anybody who got that close to the president would have been screened for weapons and particularly for firearms. Other things happened with other tragedies, too. We'll get back to the conversation in just a moment. But first, I wanted to tell you a little about Antic's Center for Protective Intelligence. In the world of protective intelligence, we know that gathering and sharing information is crucial. This is why we created the Antic Center for Protective Intelligence. We're regularly sharing strategies and best practices, insights learned from current and historical trends, as well as lessons learned from physical security experts like you. To find blogs, podcasts, webinars, white papers, and more, check out the center by visiting ontic.co slash center. That's ontic.co slash center. I know, uh, Hinckley, as you depict in Zero Fail, which was a phenomenal chapter, was able to fire six rounds in 1.7 seconds, which if you think about that in concept of just trying to protect the president, um, it it was an amazing reaction on the part of uh, PPD to uh, cover and evacuate the president and take him over to the hospital. It was, there were so many heroic and and really brilliant moves that day, even though they got some things wrong, right? Hinckley's proximity was, was unacceptable to them as well. So many things that they did basically saved Reagan's life. And nobody knew at the time how close Reagan had come to dying. He lost more than half of his blood uh, as surgeons at George Washington University tried to figure out why he was bleeding and um, why he was internally bleeding and, and finally found the bullet on the backside of his lung. Uh, and, and, you know, again, heroic and brilliant moves. His detail leader, Jerry Parr, who's no longer with us, he not only shoved Reagan instant, instantly into the limo and the safety of that, but also made a decision en route as they sped towards the White House, which, you know, is the secure place to go, he realizes the president has this pink oxygenated blood that he's burbling up a little bit and that he's, you know, not that he doesn't look so good. <laughs> and um, and though Jerry Parr can find no damage on the president as he runs his arms around his chest and his dress shirt, as he can find no indication of a wound, he knows something's wrong and he diverts the, the speeding limousine to the hospital. And if he had not done that, uh, the surgeon has been very clear that Reagan would not have survived. One of the things that I was struck, Carol, in, in reading Zero Fail was just the challenges of protecting a, a fixed structure, a high value target like the White House and the scope of problems from 
walk-ins to fence jumpers, but there was also a fair amount of technology failure there too. Well, you know, that that technology failure is really with the result of the Secret Service being shortchanged for so many years after 9-11. All of its bigger cousins in the Department of Homeland Security, that behemoth agency that Congress and the White House created in the wake of 9-11 to try to protect us from future terror attacks, the big the big cousins in that agency, you know, Customs and Border Patrol, the newly created TSA, all of these agencies were funneled billions, hundreds of billions of dollars to try to protect us in the skies, protect our borders, protect us from truck bombs and other, you know, dirty bombs that might be smuggled into the country in ports or any other place. And what's so surprising is that the Secret Service not only didn't get that money, but didn't even proportionally keep up. So in March 2017, a jumper, the second jumper to get onto the White House grounds for an extended period of time, by the way, um, that jumper makes it onto the complex, is undetected for 17 minutes because sensors on the fence line aren't working, alarms that are supposed to help the Secret Service agents and officers find an intruder aren't working. Cameras that are supposed to help also aren't working. You know, it's it's just an embarrassment that an 18-acre compound that's supposed to be one of the most secure in the world kind of had all of its security systems on the fritz. And agents and officers, you know, rightfully complained to me that, you know, America really has to do better. When you look at the Secret Service today and after reading your story, Carol, where does it go? Meaning, are you optimistic that the Secret Service leadership or the NSC or the White House will make some changes to help? I feel like the um, Secret Service has always been a little bit of a beneficiary and a victim of its proximity to the president. It's a beneficiary because if a director decides to go to the mat or the agency, and history has shown this to be true, the director can get what he wants by doing an end run around the White House and going directly to the president because the president is protected by this group of, you know, public servants and owes, if, if not his own security, his family's security to this agency. But they're also the victim because presidents are reluctant to appear as if they need protection from their voters. Um, they are reluctant to put the money and resources into an agency that is so closely identified with protecting them and also providing them with, I guess, some sort of elite creature comforts, speeding them through towns, uh, hustling them through airports that regular people don't have to go through, uh, creating barricades in downtown Washington um, that are annoying because it creates all this traffic when they travel by motorcade. But I hope that President Biden will and the White House will listen to the agents who've taken such great risks to tell me these stories, will listen to the alarm bells that they are ringing 
that a president has to stop treating the agency as protection for him and start treating it as an agency of public servants that really need the tools to do their job. It's a zero fail mission. And, you know, we can't be second and third and fourth best at that. I also think that, you know, many, many administration officials who've really dug deep and looked into this issue, they have told me that the mission of the agency has to be pared back in order for the Secret Service to really tackle its priorities rather than being spread so thin. Well said, Carol. Thank you so much for being on the Ontic Protective Intelligence podcast. And uh, I would highly recommend all of our listeners to read Zero Fail, The Rise and Fall of the Secret Service. This episode was brought to you by the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. Learn more at ontic.co slash center. Again, that's ontic.co slash center. It was produced by AJ McKeon. Our music is a track called Monte Verde Ride and was written by Brian Bristow and performed by Smokin' Novas. Check them out on Spotify. Please remember to rate and review our podcast on iTunes and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. If you have questions, we'd love to hear them. You can reach us at podcast at ontic.ai or visit ontic.co slash center for more information. I'm Fred Burton. Thanks for listening.